0: Good morning. This summer we are doing a sermon series called Summer of Eight, and we are spending six weeks going through one chapter of the Bible, and that one chapter is Romans chapter 8 and if you're not familiar with the book of romans it was originally a letter written by a man named paul during the first century and paul was a leader in the church he was a preacher of the gospel he preached the gospel to many people and he also traveled to many different cities and regions in order to preach the gospel and help plant and establish new churches And one part of his ministry was writing letters. He would write letters to Christians and to churches in order to teach them the gospel, in order to instruct them, and in order to build them up, and in order to equip them to do the work of the ministry as well. And so he wrote many letters, and one of the letters he wrote uh, was to this church, to this group of Christians in the city of Rome. His purpose was to teach them the gospel, to unpack the gospel for them, and the implications of the gospel, that they might be encouraged, that they might be built up, and that they might live their lives in accordance with the truth of the gospel. That was his purpose in writing the letter. Little did he know that God had a greater purpose for this letter. Paul's purpose was for this church I'm in a particular time, in a particular place, but God had a greater purpose for the the letter of Romans to be for the church all over the world throughout the generations. God, through his sovereign hand, preserved the letter of Romans and included it in his scripture so that we too can be encouraged through this wonderful book of the Bible. In Romans chapter 8, we have a beautiful chapter that unpacks some of the wonderful and glorious benefits of being united to Christ. You see, the way Paul describes a Christian is using the phrase, in Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ or has been united to Christ. Christianity is not fundamentally about obeying a set of rules. It's not about adhering to a set of teaching. It's not about cleaning yourself up or getting your act together so that you can be presentable to God. Being a Christian involves repenting of your sin, believing in Christ, and thus being united to him in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You see, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are united to him and this is good news for us the reason this is good news for us is because jesus christ came into the world and lived a perfectly sinless life he is the only one who perfectly obeyed god and fulfilled god's righteous requirements and so when we are united to him we receive credit for his perfectly righteous life we are also united to him in his death jesus died upon the cross, even though he was innocent, even though he was without sin, even though he's the one person who did not deserve to be punished, he was punished in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute. He took the punishment that we deserve in our place. So we are united to, united to him in his death. In Christ Jesus, our sins, our sinful nature is put to death. We are also united to him in his resurrection. After Jesus was crucified, he rose from the grave. He conquered death. And because he conquered death, he can offer us eternal life. And so when we are united to Christ, we receive the gift of eternal life. He also ascended to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He received a glorified, resurrected body. And those of us who are in Christ will also receive a resurrected, glorified body in Christ. So you see, being a Christian means being united to Christ and enjoying all the wonderful and glorious benefits of being united to Christ. We see that here in the book of Romans. We see it in Romans chapter 8. We see these beautiful and glorious benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. being united to Christ this morning we are going to pick up in Romans chapter 8 verses 26 through 30 Romans chapter 8 verses 26 through 30 let's read this together likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So our passage begins with the word likewise, which means Paul was comparing what he was about to write with what he had just written. In the preceding verses, Paul explained how we, along with all of creation, are awaiting our redemption. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit wait for what we do not see, and we wait for it with patience. What we cannot see is the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all creation. So how is it that we wait with patience? Well, the Holy Spirit sustains our hope for our glorious future, even in the midst of trials and suffering, and even as our bodies in their present form waste away. As the Spirit helps us by sustaining our hope while we wait for redemption, similarly or likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Right here in verse 26, we learn something about the nature of mankind. Namely, that we are weak. Human weakness is a theme we see repeated in the scriptures. But that is not a characteristic that people tend to attribute to themselves. We don't like to talk about our weakness. And we are not encouraged to talk about our weakness. Instead, we are encouraged to project strength. And this appeals to our sinful nature Because we like to talk about what we are good at, or at least what we think we're good at. While it's true that God has graciously enabled each one of us to be good at certain things, the reality is we are all weak. Brothers and sisters, there is freedom to be enjoyed and help to be found in admitting that we are weak. When we admit we are weak, we are free to give glory to God and abandon the empty pursuit of seeking glory for ourselves. I believe that is a tempt- temptation that we all face. We are all tempted to seek praise and glory for our own names, we all seek the praise of man. But we are called to bring praise and glory to God's name. And when we are able to come to terms with the fact that we are weak, when we are able to confess that we are weak, we are free to bring glory to God's name instead of taking what belongs to Him and trying to give it to ourselves. There is freedom in admitting that we are weak. It is good to say, I am weak. And when we admit we are weak, we are able to see more clearly our absolute need for the Holy Spirit. We recognize that we must depend on Him because apart from abiding in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we can bear no fruit. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast of my weaknesses. Why? Why? Because I desire the power of Christ. Human strength does not compare to the power of Christ. And so Paul said, I'm not going to project strength. I'm not going to try to brag about what I think I'm good at. Rather, I'm going to boast about my weakness. I'm going to talk about my weakness. Because I desire the power of Christ. I want the help of Christ, which is far better. Are you able to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I am sinful and I am weak, I desperately need your help. That is a good thing to pray. That is a good place to begin. Lord, I need you, because I am a sinner, and I am so weak that I cannot resist temptation. I cannot obey you in my strength. I cannot do your will. I cannot do what is Pleasing in your sight, even though I know what it is. I don't have the strength to carry it out. I am weak. I need you. It is good for us to confess our sin and our weakness to the Lord, and it is good for us to confess it to one another. It is good for us to humble ourselves and say, Brother, sister, I am weak. Please help me. Please pray for me. Please encourage me. Please help me to understand. Here in our passage, Paul said that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And certainly we are weak in many ways, but here Paul was referring to a specific area of weakness, namely prayer. We are weak in regard to prayer. Again, we could probably list several ways we are weak in regard to prayer, but Paul got even more specific. The weakness he was addressing was the content of our prayers. He said, for we do not know what to pray for, As we ought. We don't always know what to pray for. Our prayers are not always aligned with God's will. In regard to prayer, Tim Keller said, We can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. The problem is, we don't know everything God knows. And therefore, we do not. Know what to pray for as we ought. But God is gracious and merciful to help us in our weakness and ignorance. He gives us the Holy Spirit who does know what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit who does know what to pray for intercedes on our behalf. We read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does it mean that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings? too deep for words well let me begin by telling you what it probably does not mean it probably does not mean that during your times of prayer you should sound like a wounded animal secondly it almost certainly is not a reference to speaking in tongues as some have argued and we know this because this verse speaks of the work of the holy spirit done for all believers in first corinthians 12 30 paul made the point that not all believers speak in tongues Moreover, Tom Schreiner points out that the Greek phrase, which translates as unspeakable groanings, likely means without speech or the absence of any vocalization at all. He went on to point out that the groaning is probably metaphorical, similar to how we read about all of creation groaning in verse 22. So what did he mean? The Holy Spirit interceding for us with groanings too deep for words could refer to the constant intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf that we are simply unaware of. Or it could refer to the inexpressible longings produced in the heart of every believer by the Holy Spirit to know and do the will of God. Either way, we ought to be comforted by the intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. We ought to be comforted because He intercedes for us according to the will of God. Our prayers are not always answered because we do not always pray according to the will of God. However, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and interceding on our behalf. And His prayers are always answered because He always intercedes for us according to God's will. You have the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian. And He is interceding on your behalf according to the will of God. Be encouraged. Be comforted. In the passage I read from a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul recounted a prayer that he prayed that was not answered. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. He said, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Lord gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. We do not know what that thorn in the flesh refers to, but clearly it was unpleasant. Clearly Paul wanted it removed. He pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn in his flesh. But God's answer was no. The reason that God's answer was no is because he had a greater purpose in place for that thorn in Paul's flesh. He was accomplishing a greater purpose than giving Paul some temporary and momentary relief. Paul was ignorant of God's purpose and plan for that thorn in his flesh, so he prayed for God to remove it. But God said, No, there's a reason. In spite of our weaknesses and in spite of our ignorance in regard to what we should pray for, we can be encouraged that God is accomplishing his purposes in and through us because of the work of the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us according to the will of God. This ought to give us confidence regarding what we read in verse 28. In verse 28, God provides us with an extraordinary, perspective-altering, hope-sustaining promise. We read, "...and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." This is a glorious promise for us. Now, to be clear, this is not a blanket promise for the whole world. This is a promise specifically for those who love God. And who are those who love God? Those who have been called according to His purpose. This, of course, is a way of describing Christians. Christians are those who have been called by God and who now love God because they have been born again and given new hearts with new affections those who have been united to Christ now love God, whereas we were once His enemies. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, then this promise is for you. You can trust that God is working all things for your good. If you are not a Christian, we would encourage you to repent of your sin and believe in Christ and be saved. We invite you to enter in and this promise will also be yours. This promise is for everyone who trusts in Christ for their salvation. And the amazing thing about this promise is that it was given in the same context where Paul spoke of suffering and groaning. We live in a time when all of creation is groaning and longing for redemption. And we live in a time when we are Groaning and longing for redemption. And during this time, we experience all kinds of trials and suffering. Yet, we can be certain that even during this period of groaning and longing and trials and suffering, God is sovereignly working all things for our good. Paul had already pointed to this truth earlier in the letter In chapter five, verses three through five, where we read, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why in the world would we rejoice in our sufferings? That seems crazy. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have received the love of God which has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit but that does not preclude us from suffering. It does, however, ensure that God will use our suffering to accomplish His good purposes. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is working all things for your good? Do you have confidence in what He is doing? Do you believe that He is accomplishing a good and glorious purpose for you and He's using everything to that end? When you go through a trial, when you are hard-pressed, When you are mistreated, when you suffer, do you believe that God is working all things for your good? Friends, we don't always know why certain things happen. We don't always know why we go through hard times, but I've heard it said that we deal with what we don't know in the context of what we do know. And here is what we do know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is a truth that we are meant to know. We are meant to know this. We are meant to believe this. And we are meant to apply this truth to our hearts and our lives. We want to be a people who apply the truth of the gospel and all of the wonderful implications of the gospel to our hearts and lives. What do we mean by that? Here is what we mean. We want to know the truth of the gospel. We want to meditate on the truth of the gospel. And we want the truth of the gospel to shape our thinking. We want the truth of the gospel to shape our attitudes we want the truth of the gospel to shape our affections and our desires we want the truth of the gospel to shape our actions we want the entirety of our lives to be shaped by the truth and the implications of the gospel let me show you how we can do this using this verse this verse ought to produce in our hearts a deep sense of gratitude and it ought to remove from our hearts a sense of complaining or grumbling. Why? Because even when we go through things that are unpleasant, even when we go through things that we do not like, we can be certain that somehow, way, God is ultimately working it for our good. God is always working for our good. That should produce in us a deep sense of gratitude and remove from us complaining and grumbling. We don't have anything to complain about because God is even using the bad things in our lives for our good. This verse should produce in us a sense of peace. We do not need to be anxious about our lives because even the things that we tend to worry about, God is in control of, and God is using and working for our good. So when we meditate on this verse, it produces in us a sense of peace and delivers us from anxiety. What about when we're facing persecution? When we're facing persecution for our faith, we can think on this verse and apply this verse, and it will produce in us a sense of courage. Because we can be confident that no persecution is going to thwart God's plan. No persecution is going to prevent God from doing good for us and accomplishing His purposes for us. Therefore, we can have courage in the face of persecution knowing what we read in verse 28. This verse should produce in us a great sense of hope. When we're tempted to despair, when we're tempted to be discouraged, we can remind ourselves that even the things that are causing us to despair and causing us to be discouraged, God is somehow in some way working them for our ultimate good. And therefore, we do not need to despair, but rather we can be filled with hope. So you see, taking a, a truth such as the one we read in verse 28 and meditating on it and, 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 and believing it and applying it to our hearts and lives produces all kinds of good fruit in us and leads us in a path of repentance. We want to be a people who apply these wonderful and glorious truths to our hearts and to our lives. Sam Alberry tells the story of his friend Dimitri. His friend, Dimitri, had a son who was born with spina bifida, and he had to have surgery immediately after he was born. And then several months later, he had to have surgery again. And the doctors told Dimitri and his wife that the baby could not eat for 24 hours leading up to the surgery. Can you imagine caring for a baby that could not eat for 24 hours? I mean, babies freak out if they don't eat for like two or three hours, so during this 24-hour period, Dimitri held his baby who was absolutely screaming. This baby was being denied a good thing, food. Of course, the baby did not understand why. The baby did not understand why he had to suffer. He did not understand why he was being denied a good thing. And as Dimitri held his baby, he said, I promise you there's a good reason for this. And it occurred to him in that moment that this must be how God deals with us. When we go through something, when we suffer a hardship, when we are denied a good thing and we don't understand why and all we can do is cry out, God is telling us, I promise you, it's for a good purpose. In verse 29, Paul went on to bring clarity how God is working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He said, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The wonderful and glorious purpose that God is working in us is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And this is good news. This is a good, glorious, grand purpose that God is accomplishing in us. He is conforming us to Jesus the perfect one jesus is perfect he is perfect in love he is perfect in holiness in being conformed to jesus we get to experience his perfect love we get to experience freedom this is a wonderful thing that god is doing for us now we need to be careful how we apply romans 8:28 in light of what we read in verse 29 there are wrong ways to apply romans 8:28 let me give you some examples Imagine you're applying for a job. It's a great job. It's a wonderful job. You would love doing this job, good pay, good benefits, you really want the job, but you don't get it. It would be wrong to say, well Romans 8:28 says God is working all things for good. Therefore, there must be another job lined up that's even better that God has for me. Or imagine you want to buy a house. There's a house that you really like. Maybe it's a dream house. You put an offer on this house you really want the sellers to accept your offer you want this house but you don't get it they accept someone else's offer it would be wrong to say well romans eight twenty eight says god works all things together for good so therefore he must have an even better house lined up for us or maybe you or a loved one are sick with a serious illness it would be wrong to say Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good, therefore I'm definitely going to be healed, or my loved one's definitely going to be healed. Those are examples of how we can misapply Romans 8.28. You see, Romans 8.28 is not a guarantee that we are going to receive the best things this world has to offer. You might get that job. You might get that house. You might recover and be healed. But you might not. And Romans eight twenty eight is not a guarantee that we are going to receive the best things this world has to offer, but it is a guarantee that God is working something in us and for us that is immeasurably better than all the best things this world has to offer. 1 Peter, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we read, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved The salvation of your souls. We may very well be grieved by various trials in this life. We may experience the pain, the hardship of difficult times. But we can be certain that God is using that pain, those trials, that difficulty to refine our faith. And what do we read about our faith? That it is more precious than gold. Gold is one of the best things this world has to offer. We read that our faith is more precious than gold. Why? Because the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Something far better than gold or anything else this world has to offer. God is not working to give us the unsatisfying and temporary pleasures and comforts of this world. No, he is working for our ultimate and everlasting good, which will not be fully realized until the end time. Our transformation into the image of Jesus begins here and now. We are presently being conformed to the image of Jesus. We describe this as the process of sanctification. We are presently growing in Christ-likeness. and this is something that we want to eagerly pursue. This is why we want to apply the gospel to our hearts and lives, so that we will become more like Jesus. But God's work in conforming us to the image of Jesus will not be fully realized until the return of Christ. We see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. When He appears, when Jesus returns, we will be like Him. We will be fully conformed into His image. It has not yet happened, but it will we also see in verse 29 that God is conforming us to the image of Jesus so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here Paul highlights another glorious truth of the gospel, namely that through faith in Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We now have God as our perfect and loving heavenly Father who loves us with a stead love. He will never leave us. He will never let us down. He will always do what is good and right for us. We are adopted into his family. We have God as our heavenly father. We have Jesus as our elder brother. And we have one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. What a gift. What a privilege. This is one of the glorious benefits of the gospel that we are adopted into God's family. In verses 29 through 30, Paul also wants to give us great assurance. He wants us to have great confidence that these glorious promises will in fact come to pass. We can be certain that they will come to pass because they do not depend on us. Rather, they depend on the sovereign will of God. He wants to be perfectly clear that our salvation is the work of God from beginning to end to end. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When Paul speaks of those whom God foreknew, he is not merely speaking of cognitive awareness. When God knows somebody or knows a people, it speaks of him setting his love upon them. We see this, for example, in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, and God said this about his people Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Was God aware of all the other families of the earth? Of course he was. He knew who they were. He knew where they lived. He knew everything about them. But when he said, you alone have I known, he was speaking about his covenant love, which he set upon them. We see this in Hosea chapter 13, verses four and five. God said, but I am the Lord your God from, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God was saying, I set my love upon you in the wilderness. We see this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, where Paul wrote, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And this is a way of saying that God loves you. He has set his love upon you. And so when we read about those whom God foreknew, is most likely referring to those whom God has set his love upon beforehand. Those whom God foreknew or set his love upon beforehand, he also predestined. And in verse 30, Paul repeated the words predestined and called. He said, and those who he predestined, he also called. Now the main point of this passage is not to unpack the relationship between God's sovereign work of predestination and human choices. But when Paul uses the word predestined, it tends to open up that can of worms in our minds. So let me just speak to that for a moment. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the language of predestination, especially when used to describe our salvation. Some may feel that the idea of predestination in regard to our salvation is a violation of human free will. When people feel this way, they usually respond to passages such as this one by pushing back or trying to find a way around the clear meaning of Scripture. But I just want to take a moment to encourage you regarding the posture we must take when we come to Scripture. We must come to God's Word with complete and utter humility. We must understand that we know a little bit and God knows all things. We must acknowledge that we see a sliver and God sees all things. We must acknowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We must acknowledge that God is infinite and we are finite. We are limited. In light of this, we need to guard against requiring the Scripture to accommodate our preconceived ideas and beliefs. We must not come to Scripture and try to impose our ideas and beliefs on the text. In regard to what the Scripture teaches about salvation, we must not begin with our understanding and definition of human free will and insist that the Scripture affirm what we already believe. As followers of Jesus, we must come to God's Word with an eagerness to read what He has revealed and affirm it as good and true. And with this in mind, we need to acknowledge that the meaning of the word predestined in our passage is not obscure. Rather, it is plain. The Greek word that translates as predestined means to choose or select in advance of some other event. To choose beforehand, to select in advance. Paul is clear that God is the one who chose us beforehand, He is the one who selected us in advance. And it's not because in eternity past he looked into the future and saw something good in us. It's not because he looked into the the future and saw that we were deserving for some reason. And it's not because in eternity past he looked in the future and, and saw that we were going to choose him. We know that's not the case because of what Paul said in Romans 3 where he said no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. Not one of us seeks after God on our own. Left to ourselves, we will all reject him. Does this mean that the choices and decisions we make are irrelevant or insignificant? Absolutely not. We see clearly in the scripture that we are moral beings who make choices and are held accountable by God for our choices. On the one hand, God is sovereign over all things, including our salvation. And on the other hand, we are moral beings who bear responsibility for the choices that we make. If you are having difficulty reconciling those two ideas, you're not the first person. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer discusses this. He does a wonderful job. He talks about the fact that in the scriptures, God is revealed as a king. He is revealed as a king who sovereignly rules over everyone and everything, and he's also revealed to be a judge who judges us according to our deeds, who holds us accountable for our actions. So we see that God is revealed as a king. And we see this in Psalm 115, verse 3, where we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In Ephesians 1:11, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, not most things. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In our passage today, we see that God works all things together for our good. Clearly, God is a sovereign king who exercises his sovereignty for his purposes. We also see he is a righteous judge who judges us according to our deeds. And he is not unjust. He is a good judge. He is not unfair. He is not wrong to judge us according to our deeds. Paul made this point earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 2 where we read, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Clearly, we are responsible for the choices and decisions we make And God holds us accountable. Moreover, we are held accountable for how we respond to Jesus. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whether or not we are condemned is determined by whether or not we believe in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to receive Jesus, to believe in him. Hear the word of God. Whoever believes in him will be saved. We are held responsible for how we respond to Jesus. The Bible clearly and emphatically affirms that God is sovereign over everyone and everything, including our salvation. The Bible clearly and emphatically affirms that every person is responsible for his or her actions and will be held accountable by God for them, including how we respond to Jesus. Both are true. J.I. Packer refers to this as an antinomy. Is that a word you use frequently? Antinomy? He refers to this as an antinomy, and he says the shorter Oxford Dictionary describes an antinomy in this way. A contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Two conclusions. God is sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of his will and we are held responsible for our decisions and our choices. Two conclusions which Scripture clearly affirms that we must hold to, but are contradictory. But he clarifies, he says, for the sake of theology, we would say this is an apparent contradiction. Meaning that it's not a true contradiction, it's only a contradiction for our minds. Clearly it's not a contradiction for God because he affirms both these things in his word. It's not a problem for him, but it might be a problem for us how do we reconcile these two things J.I. Packer went on to say what should we do then what should one do then with an antinomy and here's his answer accept it for what it is and learn to live with it I think he's right I think he's right because of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9 In Romans chapter 9, Paul anticipated that people would object to what he was saying, specifically in regards to election, how God chooses some and not others. He anticipated that people would have a problem with this. So he says in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 21, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, this problem that we're discussing was not just a problem for us today. Apparently, other people in the first century also had a problem with this. They also struggled to understand these things. And so, instead of unpacking um, an answer, a rich, profound, deep theological answer, Paul said, Here's my answer. Who are you to talk back to God? In other words, we need to understand our position. We are the creatures, not the creator. We are the ones who are created. We are the ones who submit. We are the ones who accept what God says is true. We don't question him. We don't know. Our knowledge and understanding is limited. His is not. He is the creator. We are the creatures. With all that said, let's get back to the point Paul was making in these verses. And by the way, if you have a problem with anything I've said, my email address is sam@rdchurch.com. It's an acronym. In verse 30, he said, "And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified." Those whom God loved beforehand and selected in advance, he also called. Foreknowledge and predestination speak of God's work before history even began, whereas calling speaks to his work in history, whereby he effectively calls us to himself through the proclamation of the gospel." God uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring people to himself, to call people to himself. He uses the proclamation of the gospel, whether it's one-on-one in a private conversation or through the preaching of the word in a public situation. He uses the proclamation of the gospel to draw sinners to himself, to effectively call people to himself, and we get to participate in that work. We get to participate in the work of proclaiming the gospel Again, that might be in a, a one-on-one conversation, that might be in a small group, that might be in a bigger setting. Whatever the case might be, God involves us in this glorious work of calling people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. Those whom he called, he also justified, and justification speaks to God's work in making us right with him. He calls us to himself, but in order for us to be restored to him, in order for us to enjoy fellowship with him he must address our sin problem he is a good judge he is just and he punishes the guilty yet in his love in his mercy and his loving kindness he has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve for our sin while maintaining his justice and righteousness And he did so by providing Jesus Christ to take the punishment we deserve for our sin in our place. He punished our sin as was necessary, but he punished our substitute, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. So now righteousness comes by faith. Everyone who has faith in Christ will be declared righteous and just. That means we are free from the penalty of our sin. We will not be punished for our sins. On the day of judgment, God will judge us according to the righteousness of Christ rather than according to our deeds. And brothers and sisters, that is wonderful and glorious good news. Finally, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this is an amazing declaration that Paul made. Glorification is something we look forward to as followers of jesus we look forward to the day when we will be glorified we know that we are not yet glorified our bodies remind us of this constantly we know that we have not yet been glorified even though we are presently in christ we have not been perfected we are not yet free from the presence of sin we obviously have not received glorified bodies yet here in verse 30 Paul spoke of our glorification as though it were a past event. Why? Why does he say, in those whom he justified, he also glorified? As if it's already happened. Here is why. Because God is the author of our salvation, because God is the one who accomplishes our salvation from beginning to end, we can be absolutely certain that our glorification will happen. Brothers and sisters, we can take that to the bank. We will be glorified. There is no doubt about it. And we should never for a moment doubt that God will finish what he has begun. In Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I am sure of this, I am sure of this, That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who accomplishes our salvation from beginning to end. Our doctrine of salvation should be such that it leaves no room for human boasting. Our doctrine of salvation should be such that it affords us no opportunity to pat ourselves on the back. And this is not a teaching that should cause us to bristle. Rather, it should cause us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in our salvation. Rejoice in the fact that our salvation is guaranteed because it doesn't depend on us even a little bit. The purpose of this wonderful passage is to give us confidence that our greatest hope will be realized. We can be confident because God has given us the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us according to the will of God so that we can be certain that God is working all things for our ultimate and eternal good. He is working for our ultimate and eternal good by conforming us to the image of Jesus, which he will bring to completion. We know he will bring it to completion because he loved us, beforehand chose us in advance effectively called us through the proclamation of the gospel justified us through the finished work of jesus christ and therefore our future glorification is set in stone let's pray